as you, uh, as you preach through Luke, you kind of feel like, oh man, like we, you know, I preached through uh, 1 Samuel a couple summers ago, last summer, summer before, and every one of those sermons, you go, okay, there's going to be a lot of violent stuff, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's just very different than the way we see things, and, and you go, okay, we're going to have to really wrestle with, with lots of that kind of stuff. When you're in Luke, you don't think that. You think, oh, there's going to be a bunch of parables and, and stuff. And then you come to a passage like this and go, we'll receive a light beating or a hard one? <laughs> like, we'll cut up and, and put, cut them up in pieces and put them with the unfaithful? Like, yo, Luke, like, we were having a good time, you know? <laughs> like, what's going on? And, and yet here we are. And um, so when I, as I, you know, reading this, I read this a bunch of times over the week, and my mind kept coming back. There, there's a lot here just about the end of the world. And my mind, uh, every time I think about the end of the world, automatically, maybe yours doesn't, but mine goes to my first dance with my wife. Um, I, what, do you guys remember, any of you have like that part of your reception, the wedding reception, like you had a first dance? Yeah, okay. I wonder what songs you guys picked for those, because this gives you a little window into what Tiffany's been putting up with for 26 years. Um, uh, so, like, my sister and I did a, played a lot of weddings about that same time we were getting married. You know, you're in that season of life where everybody, you know, is getting married, and, and so we did a lot of weddings, and mostly the song we did was a song called I Swear. Yeah, there was like a country version and a pop version. I played that song a hundred times. Amanda sounds great singing. Yeah, I swear. You know what I'm talking about? And that's how people usually go, like until the stars and the whatever, I'll love you. Well, poor Tiffany, that's not what we danced to. We danced to a Tears for Fears song. By the way, just saw Tears for Fears a couple of weeks ago. Brilliant. They look like they just walked out of the grave, but they sound I might have already talked to you about this. It's a big thing. So, um, but they have a song called Famous Last Words. This was our first dance. And it's a great song. And the story of this song is, I just want you to pray for my wife. This has been me forever. I can't even just like have a sweet dance. You know, I got to overthink everything. So the story of this Tears for Fears song, Famous Last Words, is that this couple has just heard that the bomb is coming. Everything they know is going to be destroyed, including themselves. And everybody around them is heading for the hills and running around, you know, in paranoia. And they decide to have a quiet evening at home together. They decide to, you know, have a glass of wine and draw a bath and just hang out with their best friend, listening to the band that made us cry. They're going to put on some good music. They're going to sit in their living room, just the two of them, and they're going to wait for the end. And that is the most romantic song I've ever heard. That, I just love that song. I told you, pray for Tiffany. Um, but I, I'm thinking about this as I'm reading this, because really, this is what Jesus wants us to get thinking about, is the end of the world. And he wants us to not just be thinking about when's it coming and how's it coming and what are the signs. And we'll talk about this as we go. Rather, he wants to get us thinking about how are we behaving in light of the fact that this is a truth that's actually happening. So let's talk about the end of the world. Um, last week's parable, Jesus pointed his audience to the reality of death. This guy had a windfall crop and he built Barnes, and he said to his psyche, he said to his soul, 
Congratulations, eat, drink, and marry, and be merry. And then that very day, your soul, your psyche will be required of you. So Jesus said, hey, disciples, you need to live your lives understanding that it's not going to last forever. And now Jesus wants to take them one step further and go, actually, you need to live your life with the understanding that none of this lasts forever. Well, that's not quite right, is it? That none of this physical stuff lasts just like it is forever. But we're going to talk about how Jesus wants to get our minds to the end times so that we can behave properly now and understand that there's actually something we're living for as the end draws near. I think this is very helpful. Um, you know, again, well, this is somewhere else in my notes as we go. We'll talk about it more. But, but um, with, with world events right now, I sure have gotten a lot of emails uh, about um, this is the end, right? Like there's Russians in Ukraine and there's whatever and there's all this stuff. And I don't think it's inappropriate to go, hey, when there is scary stuff in the world, we should think about that. But I don't know if figuring out exactly the times and the timelines and the maps and the whole thing is the thrust of... Uh, a follower of Jesus. But rather, maybe there's something else. Maybe instead of running around and like crazy people and, and, and screaming in the streets, maybe rather we think about, hey, how do I live? If the time is short, then that means I don't have long to honor the Lord with everything I have. I don't have long to love my neighbor as myself. I don't have long to do the things that God's called me to do. So we're going to talk about eschatology off and on for several weeks because starting here and really starting a couple of weeks ago, but starting here and moving forward, Luke is going to use this as a backdrop an awful lot in the next several chapters. Going to have us thinking about, guys, you need to not only live in light of the last Twitter feed you followed, you need to not only live in light of the last news report you saw, but you need to live in light of the fact that your life is not going to last forever. And you actually need to live in light of the fact that Jesus really is coming back to wrap it all up. So let's do some terms. I promise not to do this every week, but let's have just a little vocabulary. Eschatos is a Greek word that just means final or the end. So you'll read things about eschatology. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. So eschatos means final or last. So the, the biblical word, or when you, when you hear scholars talk, they'll talk about the eschaton, and this is the, the final event in the divine plan. And so this is the, the last event in the divine plan, but we need to be careful not to limit God. This, this refers not to the ultimate end of God's plan, but rather the end or the culmination of God's plan that began in the garden, but last and end are misleading, and a Christian needs to know this. When we say things like last and end, and we're talking about world history, we have to remember that we don't believe in beginning, middle, end. Rather, we believe in beginning, middle, new beginning. That there are eternal things, that God has not put eternity in your heart, meaning until your natural death or until we all blow up or a meteoroid hits or whatever it is. Rather, he has put something far greater than world events in your heart. There is eternity in your heart, man. So we need to live in light of not only world events, but rather we need to live in light of a new kingdom come. So 
Eschatology is the study of last things. And again, I know that, that many of you know that, but just so we're on the same page, the study of, of end times is how a, you know, a systematic theology will describe that. But, but if by that you only mean future events, then you are ignoring the present reality of the kingdom of God. One of the things that is not simple but is vastly important is the now but not yet uh, nature of the kingdom of God. Do you live in the kingdom of God? Who's your king? J-E-S-U-S. Yes, he's the king of me. You with me? He's the king of the jungle, the land, the sea, bubble, bubble, bubble. Volunteer in children's church. You'd be a lot more fun. Jesus is the king. I'm in the kingdom. I am his subject. And yet, is it all wrapped up? No, I still await his coming. And that is something that an oversimplified version of eschatology just doesn't have room for. So we have to live our lives understanding that while we are waiting for the coming of Jesus, we are already in the kingdom of Jesus. Can I say that again? That was pretty good. While we're waiting for the coming of Jesus, we recognize that we are already in the kingdom of Jesus. So some other words, just because I'm a Bible nerd, you'll hear the term the day of the Lord. So this is mostly an Old Testament term, although there's some day of the Lord language in in the New Testament as well. But the day of the Lord was the Old Testament expectation of the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises, especially to Israel. But you can't have the covenant promises to Israel without to the rest of the world. So let me ask you, have God's covenant promises been fulfilled? Now, but not yet, right? Jesus has come. Jesus is coming. So we have to, I don't know how to say this. We have to mature a little bit in our understanding of eschatology if we're going to live good lives now. We have to hold some of these things in an open hand, timelines, maps. We have to have some of these things in a very firm grasp, like I better love my neighbors myself because Jesus is coming. So lastly, Let's understand the kingdom of God, what that means. That was Jesus' major, especially early in his preaching career, that was the major topic of Jesus' preaching, that the kingdom of God is thousands of years away. Near. The kingdom of God has drawn near. That as we follow Jesus, we are entering into his kingdom. We are his subjects he is our king. So that is that which is under direct reign of God. And again, we are in danger of making all of these things something we are waiting for in the future. It makes really lazy Christians. It actually makes really sinful Christians. We start saying stuff like, well, this is all going to burn anyway. How dare us? No, no, we believe in God who has set us to the mission of reconciliation of reconciling all things to himself. No, we don't abandon the world he has given us or the people in it. Rather, we understand that there is hope because he is coming. And so we go with the mission of reconciliation 
to introduce as many people to Jesus as we possibly can, and not only to introduce them in word, but also to live out the kingdom of God. We don't get on our knees and say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and then stand up and go, it's all the politicians' fault and it's all going to burn anyway. No. No, we say, how can I be about the business of the kingdom of the heavens? A proper understand. Here's something that I'm, I'll... This might hurt a little. A proper understanding of eschatology leaves people joyful, not angry. Leaves people hopeful, not judgmental. If you need to forget I said that, go ahead. So these terms, eschatology and kingdom of God and all these things, they're related, but they're not the same. We have to understand how they fit together if we're going to understand what the Bible says. And one of the main things we have to understand is the now but not yet nature of the kingdom. So the eschaton, just drop that like you'll sound so smart. People will be like, what church do you go to? Be like, what did you talk about on Sunday? Well, we talked about the coming reality of the eschaton. People will be like, wow, you must really love Jesus. Um, The eschaton is still coming, but the eschatological kingdom is here. Are you with me? The eschaton is still coming. The end of days, the judgment, the reward and punishment, all of that is still out there. It's still coming. But the kingdom of the heavens is here, and we have to be, in light of what's coming, we have to live in that kingdom properly now. So since the eschatological kingdom has already been established, The kingdom of God already arrived. And those who submit to Jesus as our king are living, this is so important, guys, we are living as aliens in the kingdom of sin and death and as residents of the kingdom of heaven. So, when stuff happens, then we go, man, this world is sinful. Sinner's going to sin. Am I right? It is not for us to transform this world into that world. It is for us to live out the kingdom that we actually live as residents of in the middle. Be lights. Be salt in the middle of a kingdom that's going to be a mess for a little while longer. Now but not yet is vitally important concept for modern day Christians. Because we are awaiting the coming of Christ, we long for it, we live our lives in light of it, but we don't sit around twiddling our thumbs just waiting for it. And it is pretty difficult to do. Hey, work in the yard all day, and this evening we'll go for ice cream. It's pretty hard not to just pick a couple of weeds and then sit down in some shade and wait for the ice cream. It's somebody who really loves the one providing the ice cream at the end who goes, man, I want to give a good day's work. So coming out of the last passage we studied, coming out of like verses 22 to 20 to 34, um, there was this encouragement, don't be anxious. Jesus will now turn his attention to another problem for his disciples. So don't be anxious, but also don't be complacent. We talked about this last week, but Sometimes we think that the opposite of anxiety is sitting still and thinking everything's fine. 
I don't know if you could live in this world and go, everything's fine. Like, there's child slavery in the world right now. If you're cool with that, Jesus wants a word with you. It's not saying everything's fine and I have nothing to worry about. Rather, the opposite of anxiety is mission. The opposite of over-worry is joining with what Jesus is doing in the world. So let's walk through it. All right, you have your Bibles open? Verse 35, seriously, you got your Bibles open? Make some marks, you know, be Christians and stuff. So verse 35 starts with, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Again, I think this is a contrast with, uh, um, with worry in, and being anxious in verse 22. Instead of giving into anxiety and worry, rather be dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. It's not a hard thing to understand. This is a picture of somebody. So uh, they wore long robes with a belt around. You've heard this before. And when it was time to work or time to run or time to fight or whatever it was, they'd kind of tuck up the, kind of make culottes. I, the, I don't know that culotte is the biblical term, but kind of pull up the robe, tuck it into the belt and be ready for action. And Jesus goes, look, when you undo your robe and you sit around and you like solve the world's problems sitting around talking about it, that's not the, that's not the posture of a Christian. Actually, the posture of a Christian is somebody who is prepared for action. Jesus, send me, I'll go. Not sitting around arguing about what it means to be a Christian, rather being ready to actually act like a Christian. Very different things. The encouragement is not sit around and don't worry. The encouragement rather is be ready, get ready, do something. Action, being ready for the coming kingdom is a posture of action, of preparedness. Not, an act, not a posture of apathy and complacency. I see a lot of anger in Christian folk, and I know all we really have to judge that kind of stuff by is the internet, which is a self, like self-selecting weird sample. I don't know that this is necessarily true in Christians I know, but the public persona of Christians sure is mad about everything. And it's not that there's not anything to be mad about, but what were we expecting the sinful world to be like? How do we respond in light of the grave that's ahead of us and in light of the second coming of Christ? With anger? With arguing? With a scathing tweet? No, rather by being people of love and action. Verse 36 uh, says, am I there yet? Yep. Verse 36 it says, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him and uh, at once when he comes and knocks so much, so many of the parables, so much of, of uh, the language of eschatology, the language of what's coming next uh, on the calendar in the gospels especially, but in the New Testament in general, is the picture of a loving, wonderful master who's not at home right now who has gone away and the servants are waiting for him to come back. And I wonder if we just had that picture. I don't know what picture you've had. You have pictures of wars and airplanes and helicopters and battles and maps and screaming preachers and whatever else, whatever images you have when this topic comes up. But instead of that, could you have this image that we have a loving master who is away and we are eagerly anticipating his coming back. It's going to be great when dad gets home. 
I love this passage. It's not law, but rather an invitation to care. It's not, here's the 10 things you need to be doing and you better do it. Rather, it's, if you really love the Lord, what would you like done before he comes back? There are probably a few different ways to handle the distance of the master as we await his return. One would be fear. Well, when he comes back, we're all dead. You better, we better get our act together, right? It's like when you hit your little sister when mom's not in town, not, not in the room, you spend the whole time going, don't tell mom, don't tell mom. We better figure this out right now. Or maybe we could handle it with duty. Well, Jesus is coming back. He told us to get too busy. I, I, I had a friend uh, who lived across the street from a guy with a truck with a bumper sticker that I thought was amazing. It said, Jesus is coming, get to work. It's not wrong, but it's so wrong. We could handle it with fear. We could handle it with duty, or we could handle it with love. We actually love God. We actually are hopeful. We actually have joy in our relationship with the Lord. We can't believe our salvation is real. The kingdom of heavens has crashed into the kingdom of sin and death, and I am experiencing life with the creator, a loving relationship of grace with the creator. Man, how could I prepare you know, when Tiffany goes out of town for some reason, um, when she's on her way back, I'm just on the Find My Phone app the whole drive. I pretend that she'll call and be like, hey, we're in Greenfield, and I'll be like, oh, okay. I know she's in Greenfield. I've been staring at this little blue dot the whole time because I'm so excited she's coming home because I actually love her. What if we viewed eschatology like that? God's really coming back. We really love him. What would preparing for that be like? Verse 37. Blessed are, those, uh, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. He will come and serve them. What? Blessed are those who have been lovingly waiting the return of Christ. When he gets her, he will serve us? How crazy. How amazing is that? Does that mean that we become his master? No. My dad would go out of town on business, and every time he would come home, he'd have little stupid, like if he was at a conference, we'd get swag, like I had, like, you know, pens that said, Contractors Guild, or what? You know what I'm talking about? Be like, yes, he brought presents. No, the master serves the servants because he's a wonderful, loving master. Because he delights in sitting down and going, look what you guys have done. You took good care of the place. You're loving each other. You're investing your lives well. This is the picture. This tells us. A whole, uh, this tells us a little bit about the future of believers. It does tell us something about reward coming for us, but mostly it tells us about the nature of our master. That when he comes, blessed will be those who've been in love with him and waiting for him. Verse 38 If he comes in the second watch or the third watch, 
and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. This is the second time this word blessed has shown up. And it shows up several times in this passage. And the word blessed or blessed, that's something we tend to associate with the Beatitudes. This is how we live the good life, the blessed life. Your eschatology, what you think about the end of the world, what you think about Jesus coming back has a lot to do with whether or not you're living the blessed life. If you are filled with anger and fear, it's going to be a rough life. If you are filled with hope and joy and eager to be about your father's business, well, man, there's a blessed life. The ready life is the good life. And I bring that up because there's a, maybe a worldly perspective on all this stuff that is something like, so you know when you're a kid and your mom leaves you a list of things to do before she comes home, when do you do those? As she's pulling in the driveway. Ten minutes before that, the house looks like you've been robbed, Right? It's terrible. There's laundry everywhere, and it, it smells like a hamster cage, and, and there's, you know, hot pockets, like cartons everywhere, and it's just, it's just, there's video game stuff all over the place, and then there's this moment of clarity as you hear mom's car turn the corner. You go, oh, no, we better get this house in order. That's, an imma- that's a childlike, immature version of love. And I think that in some ways the church is planning on something like that. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and we're waiting for the signs and for the calendar and the whole thing to line up so we can, in those last days, get our act together. But love's not like that. Love of Christ compels us to be good stewards while he's gone. Verse 39, but we know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. All right, since I'm using dorky words like eschatology, let's talk about the term Son of Man. Son of Man, every time you see it, not sometimes, every time you see it, you have to be thinking about Daniel. Every time. Luke uses the term son of man. That's one of the things Jesus calls himself. And this is always a reference to the coming Messiah, the coming king uh, that Daniel talks about. That's the word that Daniel used, the ancient of days and the son of man. Those are, uh, that's language from Daniel. So as Jesus says the son, something about the son of man, everybody in the room has to go, whoa. He's talking about the end of times. He's talking about that thing that we've been expecting since we read the scroll of Daniel. Let me just give you a a brief rundown of how Luke has used the term son of man. Luke 5, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Present tense, past tense, or future? Present. The son of man has authority. Luke 6, and he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Past, future, present. Present. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, 
further in, in uh, chapter 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you in your name as evil on the count of the Son of Man. That's something that's happening in the present, but Son of Man could be eternal there. The Son of Man, verse, or chapter 7, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Present, future, present. He is here. Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Future, but soon. This is something that's going to happen. We know uh, the fulfillment of this is the events around the cross. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory. Future. Way in the future. So you see the now but not yet nature of even this term. And this would have been surprising to the people who heard it. They were expecting Daniel's Messiah, the Son of Man, to arrive and wrap things up. And Yet, as Jesus uses this phrase, he connects himself to this ancient messianic figure, and yet in a way that says, I am here, I was here, I am coming, I am coming again. So this metaphor shifts quickly. No longer in verses 39 and 40 are we, um, is the, the master away and the, um, and, and the, the, the servants are stewarding the property. Rather now, it shifts to a new metaphor. Now it isn't the servants getting ready for a loving master return. Ready, this is a master of the house. Master of the house is, is like the head steward, the, the, the chief of the, of the Lord's you know, staff. And he's found unaware at being robbed because they weren't ready. If the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming... He would have not left his house to be broken into. So, two very different pictures of the end of the world. In one, there are great servants who are taking great care of the place, who are loving each other, who are doing a great job, who love the master, and when he comes back, it's going to be a season of celebration, and he will serve them in just this wonderful picture. Then there's this other picture that seems to be very different that says, actually, here's another picture of that same event where it will be like a thief came and robbed you blind and nobody knew it. So which is it? Are we awaiting a loving master to come and to give us reward? Or are we awaiting a thief who will come and cause suffering? Which is it? Well, maybe it depends on what kind of servants we are. There's a lot of things like this, where the kind of life we're living, our attitude, the choices we've made, whether or not we are faithfully following Jesus, it radically changes the perspective of an event. The Christian life is full of this kind of stuff. Um, David said, I love your law. All day long, I meditate on it. Is that everybody in the world's perspective on the law of God? No, rather, I think you could probably find plenty of people who go, God can't tell me what to do. God's limiting me. This whole Christian idea of God is just, is just trying to control me. Well, that's very different than David saying, oh, I just meditate on your law all day. And when David says law, he's talking about the covenants. He's talking about the promises of God along with the 
regulations of God, but that's a lost idea in our culture, isn't it? That, oh my gosh, if we live close to the Lord, there will be great blessing. So which is it? Is it a positive event coming or is it a terrifying event coming? Well, don't answer too quickly, but maybe the answer to the question that really matters is do you love him? Do you love God? Do you live your life in such a way where you're not responding to all the junk in the culture? There is junk in the culture. There has been junk in the culture. There will be junk in the culture. What matters is are you a faithful servant loving the Lord? There's no need to worry. In fact, we need to worry less about timing and more about our love for God. I mean, think of it like this. If your favorite celebrity wanted to come to your house for dinner, man, who would that be? I, I'm, a, I'm a Bible. Okay, I'll be honest. If Bono wanted to come over to my house for dinner, everything he said, I would laugh, right? I would just be like, you're amazing. Ha ha. He's the lead singer of you too. Respect your elders. I love that guy. I have since I was like 14. If, he wanted, if I heard that he was coming over tomorrow, oh man, the house would be spick and span. I would live my light between here and there in, in light of like him coming. And it, whatever he wanted to talk about would be fine with me. And I would just go, wow, this is the most amazing thing. I'd hide all my guitars so he didn't think I could play them. You know what I mean? I'd be so intimidated. But what if the person that irritates you the most the celebrity you are least in love with, I'm not going to say any names, said, hey, I'm coming to your house tomorrow night. Man, you, we'd break the land speed record for eye rolling, right? They'd be like, hey, can I have a drink of water? We'd be like, ah, oh, this guy, always oh, with his needs, or whatever it'd be. The whole perspective is whether or not you love him. And sometimes I wonder, if the way we are preparing for Jesus to come back demonstrates that we love him. So maybe we should worry less about timing. Maybe we should worry less about maps. Maybe we should care a whole lot about whether or not we truly love the Lord. Do you love him? Do you act like that? Because there won't be time to prepare. You're not going to hear mom's car turn in the corner. Thief in the night, blink of an eye. And if you love Jesus and you're submitted to him and your will is submitted to his will, you'll be ready. You don't have to worry about it. Come anytime. But if what you actually love is yourself and you just want to get out of hell and go to heaven, you're not going to be ready. You can't do it. There's not time. So the question isn't, are we seeing signs of the end times? Yeah, have been for 2,000 years. Rather, the question is, does my life demonstrate such love for Christ that I'm ready today? And I'll be ready tomorrow too. So Peter hears all this, and Peter goes, so Jesus, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And let's put ourselves in Peter's place. Because Peter is a little taken aback by the whole thing. Jesus, who exactly are you talking to right now? 
Because it sounds like you're talking about there's some danger here. It sounds like there's some risk of missing out or, or missing our chance to be living in the kingdom of God. And, and certainly, you can't be talking about us. I left my dad's fishing business for this. You've got to be talking about all these other people. And Jesus' answer might challenge us. Because we would love to. And I'm in. I have eternal security. I'm all the way in. But we kind of feel like we made a one-time decision for the Lord many years ago and kind of wrapped it up. And Jesus' answer to Peter is more nuanced than that, to say the least. Jesus' answer might challenge us. We would love to think about our salvation as a one-time event in the past and the kingdom of God as a future reality. When did you get saved? Well, 1980, I think. Maybe 1979. I don't know what month it was. I was six. Well, was that it? And then when's the kingdom of God? Oh, when Jesus comes back. Well, I might live to like 106 years. It's going to have to be less chili dogs in the mix if I'm going to live to 106. What do I do for those hundred years? I got saved. Now I just wait for heaven. Is this, is this the plan? Is this what Jesus says? That would, that would be the truth if Jesus went, oh, Peter, I'm talking to other people. Don't worry about you, man. You're already, it's already done for you. Great job. Because you can have law without relationship but you can't have love without relationship. Peter, you're asking a question about law. Who's this for, Jesus? Is it for them? Is it for me? Who are you talking to? Well, Peter, you kind of sound like, we don't have, like we're not friends, like this isn't a loving relationship. So Jesus says this. The Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise messenger or manager? whom his master will set over his household to give him their position, uh, their portion of food and at the proper time. Blessed, there we are again here, the blessed people. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing when he comes, so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So instead of saying, Peter, don't worry about it. You're already in. Kick back. I'm talking to all these normal people. Rather, Jesus says, well, Peter, you tell me. I bet you know what faithfulness looks like. So this is about reward when Jesus returns. And we might be tempted to spend our time going about, what did Jesus mean by he'll set all of his possessions over this faithful steward? I don't know that that's the point we're supposed to focus on. Because also, and probably more important, this is a passage about Peter's faithfulness. Are you with me? Peter's saying, Jesus, are you talking to me or are you talking to somebody else? And Jesus answers, well, I don't know, Peter, are you faithful? Here's the thing. Whenever anything happens in the world, I hear an awful lot about the end and judgment and maps and timelines, but our job is to be faithful stewards of the kingdom of God that is already here. And what a faithful steward looks like, Jesus maps out for us. A faithful steward is obedient. Are you obedient to the Lord? 
He's doing what his master told him to do. I think it's very compelling, and I, you know, I haven't thought about this enough, but it's very compelling that this is not a list of things that the steward isn't doing. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, well, a faithful steward is the one who doesn't say bad words or look at naughty pictures. A faithful steward is the one who um, has you know, kept himself clean from everything. Rather, he says, no, a faithful steward is the one who is actively obeying, being a steward over what I gave him. So we'd have to ask ourselves, what does preparing for the end times look like? Well, we could talk about that for a long time, but it has to have something to do with taking care of the least of these. It has to have something to do with widows and orphans. It has to have something to do with loving our neighbors. It even has to have something to do with loving our enemies. Can I say that? Like from a biblical perspective, you're not ready for Jesus to come back if you have hate in your heart for an enemy. If you like red things and you hate blue things, or you like blue things and you hate red things, you're not ready. Faithful stewards are the ones who when Jesus comes back, he goes, loving people in my name? That's what I asked you to do. You're ready. You're getting there. They're not only obedient, but they're working. The faithful servant is about his father's business. It doesn't matter when the master comes back. He's going to be doing the same thing today anyway. One of the most frustrating things about arguing about the end times for me is that we get frozen by these arguments. You know, we never, we never really argue about love God with all your heart, soul, your strength because it's too easy to understand. But we love to sit in a circle and argue about when Jesus is coming back. Because it's harder to understand. There's valid disagreement between Christian brothers and sisters. But we get frozen by arguments like this. We get frozen by world events. We get frozen by theology. It's possible to spend so much time arguing, thinking about, talking about what this means, what it means to be in the kingdom of God that we never actually do any kingdom of God stuff. Obedient action. That's what a faithful servant looks like. So if you see something in the news that you go, oh my gosh, that that reminds me of something. I think maybe this this is a sign. What would your response be? Well, a faithful servant's response would be to be obedient. Be a person who's ready. Be a person of action in the kingdom. So then Peter gets told what an unfaithful servant looks like too. Verse 45 says, but if that servant says to himself, we're still talking about Peter, this is really important because I think this is something that certain theological streams can latch on and go, these are two different servants. But actually, as Jesus says this, this is one servant making two different kinds of decisions. Each of us has the ability to choose to be faithful and obedient. Each of us has the opportunity to be like this. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at the hour he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces, yeesh, and put him with the unfaithful. Three things to note here and I'm about done. First of all, would you please note that the, unfaith- the unfaithful servant's motivation, he is motivated by self, not love for the master. You know, I want you to put yourself in this place. 
Say this is really the, let's enter into the picture of the parable that Jesus is saying. Say you work at a place uh, where there's a large land and lots of servants, lots of employees, lots of people to take care of. And your boss says, hey, I'm going to put you in charge. I don't know how long I'll be gone, but I'm going on a trip. And while I'm away, I want you to be in charge. Now, if you are motivated by selfishness and gain, you might say, as soon as that car, my boss's car turns the corner, let's like bring in a PlayStation. Let's like, we don't have to do any work around here. Like, I don't care if anything gets cleaned. I don't care if the equipment gets maintained. In fact, anybody back talks me, they're getting a beating. Now, if you love your master, then when he leaves, you go, oh, man, I want to run everything just like he would. He's loving and good. I'm going to be loving and good. He takes good care of people. I'm going to take good care of people. I want to prove myself to him, not because I doubt his love and I'm trying to earn it, but because I love him so much. Do you hear much of that in the current discussion about eschatology? I just don't. What's our motivation? The second thing I want to you know, point out from this short passage is the unknown return date. I, I feel like there's a lot of folks my whole life, I don't, I don't know, you know, I kind of started becoming theologically aware in the 80s, and it was just book after book after book about here's the Antichrist, and here's the timeline, and here's how it all works, and it's kind of the Christian culture that we've all come up in, and, and the truth is that's a very complicated thing to put together timelines and maps. And there's a lot of disagreement about good Christian folks, but there's just very little in each of those books about, look, the clearest thing we can know about the end of the, uh, the date of the end of the world, according to the scriptures, is that you're not going to know when it happened. That's the clearest thing. And easily found in several New Testament passages. Third, we need to acknowledge that there's a portion here that's the greater, uh, um, the, or the great and severe punishment that awaits the unfaithful. You know, this is, we just don't want to think about this very much. And we sure want this to be for somebody else. We sure would love to think that this punishment that awaits is for somebody else and be so great. And I, I basically do think it's not for us if we're faithful Christians. You showed up on a, on a Sunday morning. I imagine you love the Lord to one extent or another. But Jesus said this to Peter, not to a Pharisee who's rebellious. But he looked at Peter, the guy who he had said on this rock, on this declaration of that, that has come out of Peter's mouth. Uh, this is what I'm going to build my church. And then he looks at Peter and goes, man, there's going to be pain. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be punishment. And then continuing on in verse 47, he says that, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according, he will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. I, I don't know exactly what's going on there. But I do know 
that as we talk about, well, what's God going to do with the people who live on the island that's never been evangelized? Then they've never heard about the Lord. Or what do I do about my neighbor who's never even been to church? And what do I do about people who haven't heard? Jesus would say, why don't you do more worrying about people who have heard? You know the story of God become man who lived a life of poverty and sorrow so that he would go to the cross at the hands of wicked men and, the, and by the will of God that he might take on your pain, your suffering, that he might take on your sin so that you might live in a loving relationship with him now and eternally. What a beautiful burden that is to steward. And if we take that kind of responsibility, that, the, that, that pearl of great price, that treasure that, that, we would, that, that we've been looking for our whole lives, and we turn that into an opportunity to be cruel to other people because they don't think like us. It's not being a faithful steward. Peter, it isn't for you to sit back and rest because you know you're already in. Instead of that, understand that you've been entrusted with a lot. You've been entrusted with knowledge, with experience. And the standard is higher for us. The question is, how are you investing? How are you stewarding the kingdom of God? Three big ideas, then I'll let you go. First, the eternal kingdom is for those who are already in it. Well, who's going to be in the kingdom when Jesus comes? Oh, those who are in the kingdom now. There's a, I can't remember, a van or something driving around town that says, Jesus is coming back. It's a great message. Got no problem with it. Preach, preacher. But Jesus has already come. And he has made a way for us to be right with the Lord, right with God, right with our creator where we don't deserve it. And instead of just thinking about what happens when Jesus comes back, we could understand that that time of reward is for those who are already stewards, who are already servants of God. The question is not, what do I do then? The question is, what are you doing now? The second big idea. Our place in the kingdom is evidenced by love of Jesus expressed in love for others. Our place in the kingdom is not expressed by our theological perfection and unwillingness to be nice to those who don't agree with us. It's actually the exact opposite. Our place in the kingdom, I didn't click the thing. Our place in the kingdom is evidenced by our love for the Lord expressed in our love for each other. What does Jesus want to find when he comes back? All of us sitting in a circle arguing about dates and maps. All of us, you know, furiously posting about the evils of the culture or the people we don't like or whatever. If you're a parent with more than one kid, you've come back to a situation like that. Date night's over. Hey, guys, how you doing? He said this, and she said this, and they broke it, and the whole thing. And you go, ugh, this is terrible. Maybe you've also come back 
to everybody getting along, everybody loving each other. That's what you want to come back to. Having said that, the third big idea is that perseverance is worth it. Did I spell that right? There's going to be some trials. Sometimes it's hard to be a faithful servant, a faithful steward of of the kingdom of God, mostly because it doesn't work out all the time. You do the right thing and still feel like you lost or or we're brokenhearted over what's happening in the culture. You, you watch a news report and you just feel some righteous rebuke welling up within you. And not only that, but there's sorrow and suffering. Everybody in the whole world has to wrestle with if God is good and God is great, why is the world so hard? Why is the world so terrible? It's hard to persevere. And when Jesus talks about his second coming, when even the book of Revelation is written, it is not to give us a timeline and a map. It is to tell us those who persevere to the end will be rewarded. You only have to do this for 100 years. And then there's eternity with him. I was actually even thinking, this is a terrible thing to say. I was actually... I was going through like some of the authors, and I won't list any names, but some of the authors who wrote all those books about the end of times and whatever, and I actually Googled them. They're almost all gone. The people who had identified in the 70s and 80s, this is this guy, and this is this, and this is how it all works, and this is the end. Most of those guys have gone on to be with the Lord. The end of time is one thing. But in the next hundred years, you're going to see the Lord face to face. And the question is not going to be where you write about dates and maps. The question is going to be, did you steward what God gave you here? Did you love your neighbor? Did you love your enemy? 